I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton. As the premier independent bookstore in the Hamptons, Bookhampton has a highly curated selection of books for readers of all ages, unique one-of-a-kind gifts, and exciting author events. Browse their fabulous staff suggestions online at bookhampton.com. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Gary John Bishop, who is the best-selling author of I can't even say this if there are kids around, so make sure their ears are closed, but it's called Unfuck Yourself, Get Out of Your Head and Into Your Life. Gary John Bishop runs Unfuck Nation, which includes a blog called The Asterix and online classes. He is one of the leading personal development experts in the industry. Originally from Scotland, he now lives in the U.S. with his wife and three children. Oh, hi, Gary. It's Zippy Owens from Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for letting me push this back a little. Sure, no problem. And I'm great. <laughs> Good. So your book was fantastic. I feel totally empowered having read it. <laughs> Although I had to kind of thank you. I had to kind of hide the title from my kids. Yeah, of course. My daughter was like, "Mom, what are you reading?" <laughs> I know the feeling. I'm, I've got a 13 year old, a six year old, and a four year old. So it's a it's a little bit of a dance in my house when it comes to the title of the book. <laughs> wow. I think actually there were a lot of ways that this book can help parents. One of the ways I thought it really helped is I feel like there's a lot of self-doubt in the art of parenting itself. You know, am I doing this right? Yeah. Is this the right punishment? Should I, you know, should I go in or leave her alone for a timeout? All these things. And in the book, you say we have about 50,000 thoughts in a single day. So I'm wondering, what would you, what would your advice be for how do I, you know, channel the doubts and give myself more confidence as a parent? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm able to answer this both from the perspective of of what I do and from the perspective of being a dad. One of the first things that I really had to give up in being a parent was that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and, I, and really like, you know, because mostly people parent as a reflection of the parents or in some kind of reaction to the parents. So it's kind of like you're either going to deal like just like your mom or totally not like your mom or your dad or whatever. So people are, are invariably either trying to recreate or react to the childhood they had. And I think the more you recognize that, the more that I recognize that, the more that I actually get a little bit more room to breathe, right? But kind of settling myself down with, all right, look, this is the first for me too. Right? I've never done this before. It's a new world for me. And uh, I found that with my oldest son, like really letting him know, look, I'm not always going to get it right with you, but I want you to know that the intention is always there to get it right, right? And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, which gave me a lot of freedom with him, you know, like freedom for myself and freedom for him too, Mm -hmm. to just be authentic with him and tell him the truth, right? Rather than, oh, you know, I'm the voice of everything you'll ever want and, you know, like really to give up the notion that I was somehow the voice of God or something. So that was really like empowering for me as well, because then I could say, well, if I get it right, I get it right. And if I don't get it right, you know, I don't get it right. But at least we'll both learn something out of this. And I I think that's part of the part of the dance with being a parent is we're really committed. I think we're really committed to not screw it up mostly. (laughs) I think there's a lot of good intention there, but often the intention behind the action isn't communicated. And so all the kids really left with is the action. But if you're obvious about the intention, look, you need to learn something new here or whatever you're doing here doesn't work. And so we're going to do this instead. Like all of those things allowed me to really connect to my children authentically as opposed to 
trying to fake it till I make it or something. <laughs> you wrote. Did that make sense? Yeah, totally made sense. I want to talk a little more about what you said a minute ago about how we parent in reaction to our own parents. Yeah. You wrote in your book that you know many of the clients have this subconscious desire to prove that their parents did a bad job in raising them, and that plays out in their life in many ways. Yeah. How do you see that playing out in how people become a parent, not just in the habits they sort of pick up throughout their lives? Yeah, your determination to not repeat the past is what repeats it. <laughs> right. So if you start with the notion that everyone either reflects or tries to basically do a better job than their own childhood, right? So you're going to do, I'm going to do what my dad did. That was really great. I'm not going to do what my dad did. That was terrible. So you end up with the opposite, right? So you end up with like either the opposite or the same. I think one of the things we fail to notice is what do we think our children are going to do with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. So your children are going to do what you did. What's that? They're either going to do that or the opposite. So if you do the opposite of what your dad did and your daughter does the opposite of what you did, they're going to do what your dad did. And that's really the very kind of like pretty crazy cycle I think we get ourselves into as parents. It's like, oh, you know, my mom wasn't very loving with me, so I'm going to be really loving with my, you're going to be really obvious about my love with my children. And some of your children grow up with, oh, my God, my mother suffocated me. It was like too much. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to leave my children alone. And then their parents, their children grow up with, oh, my gosh, my mom like never showed me any love. So I just, I'm going to show it to my kids. And the cycle just keeps continuing. So my focus with my little ones is I'm not trying to make up for some stuff that I didn't have in my past. I just went the way it went. Or I'm not trying to replicate the things that happened in my past because they're gone. Mm-hmm. And the way I look at it with my kids is really, I'm more interested in what works, what's going to work here, right? okay, what's going to work for you, what's going to work for us as a family. And all of that is kind of shrouded in just my just complete and unequivocal love for them. You know, I'm always, I always tell them, I mean, daily, I tell my children many, many times every day. And really, I don't just mean like, see ya, bye, love ya. I mean, like, I really tell my children I love them and how much they mean to me. But I've, again, I've, I'm always in this practice, I guess. Sometimes I notice it, sometimes I don't. But I'm always in this practice of really trying to disconnect myself from making up for or replicating something that's already happened. So important. It's sort of a vicious cycle, yeah. these things you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> time to stop it yeah. now. You yeah. know? <laughs> no time like yeah. the present. Uh-huh. You said also in the book that, which I found to be really helpful, just on a personal level, but also as a parent, you wrote, you must first accept that while there are things that have happened in your life that you've had no say in, you are 100% responsible for what you do with your life in the aftermath of those events, which it seems like an obvious concept, but it's so easy to lose the plot and not remember that in day-to-day life. So what are some sort of adaptive ways to cope with the past? I know that's a broad question, but how do you manage things that are out of your control like that? Yeah, it's funny, you know, like I'll look at the way we are as human beings from a very distinct kind of place, okay? So I don't look at I don't look at you as a human being from the possession of, say, psychology, right? Mm-hmm. I don't look at you from the possession of, say, neuroscience or something. Those things are interesting. Don't get me wrong, very interesting. I tend to come from a very philosophical standpoint. And I get really empowered by philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre. And Sartre says it's all meaningless, it's all empty and meaningless. So what does that really mean? It means, well, if you look back in your past, and you can only do that in your head, by the way. You can't look back any other way. There's no, like, standing on the precipice of a cliff, kind of looking into the past. It's not out there. Right? <laughs> so it's all in your head. 
going to be sitting recollect the past, you'll notice you've given some weight and significance to some things as opposed to some other things. So another way to say that to a human being is you, like all human beings, have cherry-picked your past and you've kind of made yourself a nice little basket of goodies there that you're going to carry forward with you as some kind of template for how to live out your future. And when you really dig into it, and I've I've really dug into this, like it's kind of maniacal levels at times. <laughs> but anyway, I realized like, I could have come up with a lot of different versions, but I, I noticed I came up with my version. And one of the things that I noticed as an adult is that I've become really like dug in about my version of my past. So if you dared question my version of my past, I was on the defense and I'm like, you can't tell me what you know happened in the past. And I noticed that I would say I want to get over my past, but in certain cases, if you poked me enough, I would fight for it. I'd be like, oh, no, I want to get over this garbage. I really do. I'm done with this time in my life. But if you dared question how I saw it or my experience of it, I would defend it. And I started to get the absurdity of that. Like, what am I doing here? Like, if I'm really interested in letting go of this thing called the past, one of the things that might get me there is coming to terms with that I have a version of it. And that was a long process for me, but I started to realize that the moment I got over what had been was the moment that I realized how I'd used it to justify myself. Hmm. And the moment I could see that, it was like shocking. Like, oh my gosh. Like, when I'm doing this, I explain it by talking about that. And I'm doing this over here, I explain it by talking about that over there. And I realized I just framed all my jerkiness around it. You know, it was really like, I'm awesome, and it's completely a function of the people in my life who made me awesome. It was always like, I'm awesome, in spite of the people who attempted to screw me up. And I started to realize that every time I did that, I gave away my power. And I was living some, like, I was stuck in the matrix of old thoughts and old emotions and old approaches and old ways of looking at things. And if I truly wanted to have a future, like an unrecognizable future, I'd have to give up that my past has any kind of say in that. Wow. That's powerful stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here in my head thinking, how can I rewrite my past? And like, maybe I need to take some things out of my little basket and uh, put some yeah, new things well, in there. Yeah, it's good. Actually, see, look, if you start, the question you ask yourself is, how can I rewrite my past? Okay. That's a great question you ask yourself because it first admits that you wrote it. Right. So it's like, that's the place you would start. Like, what if I've screwed myself? <laughs> what, if, <laughs> what if those, right? Like, what if those, there's certain things that happened and I'm not weighed down by what happened, but rather I'm weighed down with what I told myself about what happened. Like, what did it really mean? Mm-hmm. If that happened in my past, what does that mean about me? What does it mean about life? What does it mean about other people? And those things are, are the anchors that keep you down. It's not what happened. It's what you settled upon after that. Hmm. That's what has you by the throat in your life. So uh, my new book goes into some of this actually in a lot more detail about the ways in which as human beings, we are pretty much in a cycle of attempting to confirm what we've already concluded. Hmm. And what you've already concluded is not good news. (laughs) But when you see your own version, you actually catch yourself in the act of perpetuating the myth of your own past. You actually catch yourself doing it. That is a little shock. And it's like, wow, like I'm, I've coached many, 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 many thousands of people. And it's always shocking to them when you, when you reveal something that they've concluded. And then they actually get a chance to get a real broad view of how they've lived their life with that. And for many people, it's stuff like I'm not smart enough. 
I'm not loved. I'm never going to make it. I don't belong. I don't fit in. And whatever your personal brand of it is, you're actually out to prove it every day. Like you're out finding evidence for it, confirming it, then trying to get over it and then returning yourself to it and then trying to get over it and then returning yourself to it and then you die. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of how that goes. So I don't know if I can ask this, but there were many references to sort of the, the quote, grit of your early life and a crisis you went yeah. through yourself. And I was just wondering if you were able to share sort of what it was in yeah. your, your past that inspired you to take this path and share this yeah. you know, help with others. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it's perfect. I see you would ask me that question, given the context of the conversation we're having right now. But that was... Like everybody else in this planet, if you'd asked me to tell you about my life, I could explain it to you. And if you'd asked me to tell you why it turned out the way it turned out, I could explain that too. And if you'd asked me to tell you about my success, I could explain that. And my failures, I could explain that too. And it was in my late 30s, I started to realize that I was quite, and I, I, I didn't think I was a bad man or something. I mean, I wasn't certainly not morally bad, let's put it that way. I would have looked on myself as a morally good person. But like all human beings, you know, I get to write off my nonsense by saying, and I'm flawed, right? Rather than just owning the whole thing. But in my 30s, I realized that for the most part, when I looked at the cruddy parts of my life, I could explain that by talking about the way my mom raised me. So I could explain it that way. And then if I looked at the good parts of my life, I could explain that by some of my character traits. Right? So I'm independent, driven, you know, I'm charismatic. That's why I'm awesome. Mm-hmm. And then here's why I'm not so awesome. My mom didn't do this, didn't do that. Not enough of this, not enough of that. Needed more of this. She was never there for that. All of that stuff. And I realized that as an adult man in my 30s, I wasn't going around like broadcasting this on every corner, but in the darkest corners of my mind, I was explaining it to myself in terms of, I'll never get what I want because my mom screwed it up in the first 15 years. And that was the sum of it. There was lots more to it than that. There was a lot more kind of gone with the wind to it than that, right? It's a lot more drama to it. And I, and I won't bore you with the details because ultimately it's just boring. It's just like everybody else, you know, I'm blaming somebody for the way my life turned out. And I started to realize, like, if this is how I'm going to frame my future, you know, I haven't lived with my mom since I was 16. And here I am, 38, still talking about it to myself. <laughs> Um, So I had this kind of like big come to Jesus in my head, you know, and I called my mom up and I I thanked her for my life. Uh And I thanked her for the privilege of being a man and like who I'd become. And I told her I loved her. I said, I love you. And in that moment, like it hit me, like I hadn't told my mom that I'd loved her since I was about nine. Uh Like I noticed that my wife, like the process had already started by the time I hit nine. And I wasn't like, I was a good kid. I was like one of these like fundamentally good children but the resentment was building and I was building a case for myself and for her. And, and it was no coincidence that I lived 3,000 miles away from her, you know. And it was radical. It, it, suddenly, I could see my mom in a whole other light. I mean, it literally did. I rewrote my past. Like, I, I recontextualized every action she'd taken. And in the eyes of the kid, and you have to do this, by the way, meticulously. You can't just do this in a blase statement like, Oh, yeah, you know, they did their best, which is what people say. And it's nonsense. You're not confronting anything. I looked back and I said, what did she do? Well, she raised four kids. My dad mostly wasn't there. He was an alcoholic. 
she was in her 40s and basically her life was done. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to do. And there I am complaining that, you know, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. I didn't get this, I didn't get that. As a kid would do, right? But then I really started to come to terms with, I complained that she wasn't loving with me in the way that I wanted her to be loving. And I really confronted the notion that I had turned into my own little narrative, that I'd become that guy. Like I was a stoic, hardworking, but don't do that lovely stuff for me. I'm not at my most comfortable there. I've literally become the thing that I complained about. Mm. And I realized I'd, I'd become that way with her. So I went on this like full on mission to just demonstrate my love for her, for people, for my family. And everything altered for me in the space of about five minutes. Like my whole life pivoted. And I realized that my life was all about making a difference for people. Like I lit my mom up that day like a Christmas tree, like in a way she hadn't been touched or inspired. And I realized that I could do that with my life. Like I could have something to be here for. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Wow. What a story. That's really beautiful and inspiring. Thank you. I I can just imagine how your mom must have felt that day. And I'm hoping other parents out there are getting calls like that as a reaction to this. Right. (laughs) So... How do you feel now that you have dedicated your life to helping other people with your books, with the courses yeah. that you teach? Tell me a little more about the yeah. classes you teach. What, like, what are you getting from it yourself, and, yeah. and what are you offering out there to yeah. the universe? <laughs> so, you know, I've been in this kind of game, if you like, and I don't mean a game like like a setup kind of thing. I mean, like, literally, like, I've been using my life for something. And you're always using your life for something, by the way. That's always surprising to me when people think it's noble. Oh, you're using your life to make a difference. Okay, but the alternative was I was going to use my life to run a small construction company. I decided against that. So I decided to use my life for making a difference for people. And one of the things that I experienced when I was first getting into doing personal growth work was, to me anyway, a lot of it just didn't land with me. It didn't do what I wanted it to do. And I wanted to be awakened. And I realized to awaken me, you needed to provoke me. You couldn't awaken me by telling me to unleash my inner spirit or something. It just didn't work with me. I was that's not going to do it for me. I need somebody to tell me, what are you doing, you jerk? And then when somebody did that with me, I was like, oh, huh? What? What do you mean? And that allowed me to confront some sacred cows of mine, which is never easy, by the way, because we're organized around these things. We've built lives around them. And then somebody says, yeah, you might want to question that. That's not accurate, actually. And you're like, huh? What do you mean? I've been doing this for three decades now. What do you mean? That might not be accurate. Of course it's accurate. So all of my work is in that genre, is in that style, if you like, rather, of confront. I am firmly of the belief that the most powerful transformations of your life are kind of ugly and snotty and have tears in them. And you hate every moment of it, but you know it's completely necessary for what's on the other side of it. Um, I haven't had any trans. I've had no significant transformation in my life that was like a joyous leap across a blanket of flowers in a country field, uh, you know, overlooking the Swiss Alps. <laughs> I never had any of those. I'm not saying they don't <laughs> exist for people. They never existed for me. So my courses and my books and everything that I do is to present people with certain absolutes. Because I think if you present people with an idea, they always take the road out. They immediately start thinking of somebody else in their life, right? Like, I, you know, sometimes I'll put stuff up on Facebook and Instagram. I'll say stuff like humility. It's not just for other people. And then I'll see people like 
tag their friend with it. (laughs) 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 And I'm thinking, no, it was for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's not easy to challenge people with absolutes because when people, say, are have a trait for being analytical, all they want to do is talk about the theory of it rather than confront, well, what if this is true about me? What what does that then mean? And that's what I invitively do when you interact with my work is to look at it like I'm talking only about you and this thing totally applies to you. Even though at first you might say, this doesn't apply to me. But if you sit with it and you're still in it and you allow yourself to be with what I'm proposing, you often get shocked at how penetrating it is because... And I think that's something we don't really do enough of as human beings that really do the critical thinking to break things down for ourselves and question ourselves. So it seems to have really been a powerful uh, approach for a lot of people. You know, I think the book's, I think it's about 800,000 copies or something now, and it's been received in such a passionate way by people. I think people want something else. I think sometimes they want to cuddle and sometimes they want to wake up and I'm the wake-up guy. That's awesome. <laughs> and you have a new book coming out on your blog, The Asterix, which is such a cool name. You wrote, I've been working on the next book for the last eight months or so, and as with everything I write, I've gone through my usual library of negative self-talk. And then you go on to say, ultimately, what it comes down to is whether I'm going to define myself with all this stuff mm-hmm. from the past, or am I going to strike a blow for some as-yet-to-be-uncovered future? And that's the choice we each have to be defined by what has been or what right. has yet to come. So tell me how this applies to writing, because yeah. I know there are a lot of writers out there who are, you know, plagued by self-doubt and don't have enough of the positive yeah. self-talk that you preach. How did that play into your writing your next book? And when does it come out? Yeah, well, firstly, it comes out May 7th. And it's about, it's the whole thing's about self-sabotage, okay? But it's about, you'll actually uncover your very personal self-sabotage in this book. You'll actually see yours. And you'll see the whole of it, like not just a bit of it. You'll see the whole model. You'll actually see like, oh my gosh, this is what it's all based on. And um, I think one of the downsides with a lot of personal growth work has been this propensity to have people constantly be positive, which, you know, has a value, but it leaves you short if you're struggling with that. Like you're, you're pretty much toast if you don't have something, if you're not in some kind of positive state. And every negative thought you have, if you stop and listen to it and get the nature of it, you'll see that it's based in some already existing notion that you've adopted. So I can't do it. It's too hard. I'm not smart enough. I don't trust people. It's just too much of a struggle for me. It's never going to happen for me. I'm not loved. I'm incapable. It's all... You've already had all these thoughts. They're not, it's not like something new, like, oh my gosh, I just came to the conclusion that I'm a smurf. You never have thoughts right, like that. It's always the familiar, right? And when you're pressed in life, so people call it overwhelmed or stressed. I call it pressed. It seems like life is on you and it's kind of squeezing on you, you know? And when life is on you and it's squeezing on you, that's when the juice comes out, right? And it's not like, it's not like the awesome juice of a mango or something, right? It's like, it's like your ugly snot juice that comes out, right? So it's when you're at your worst, and it's seemingly you're at your worst when you need to be at your best in life. That's what I've noticed anyway. Like, I really need to be confident right now, yet somehow I'm drained of any last modicum of self-belief. My position with people is, what if you could still act on 
something else while gripped by this negativity. And so in my new book, I actually talk about the illusion that we have as human beings is that somehow we are caused by our past. So that is, there's some kind of direct correlation. In fact, not even a correlation. It's more like a causality. Like, I am this way today because of that thing that happened this morning or happened last night or happened 10 years ago. Like, everything that I am today is a function of something that's already been, whether it's two minutes ago or 20 years ago. Included in that notion is that causality only travels in one direction, only ever travels from the past to the present, can only ever be caused by what's been. And again, this is, if you give that some thinking, not some thoughting, which is usually pointless, but you actually give it some thinking, there's been plenty of times in your life if you just let yourself be with it, when you've actually, causality has actually traveled from the future. So that might sound a little abstract, but if you've ever gone on, or you've ever booked a flight to go on your vacation, and you've experienced the excitement of going, yet you haven't gone yet, you're being caused in that moment by the future. The future hasn't happened, but it's reaching back to you and lighting you up. So you're actually being inspired by something that hasn't even taken place. So I say to people, well, if you're an author, you say, okay, what's my book? What's my masterpiece I'm out to create here? What if I was caused by that? What if that was what got me out of bed in the morning? What if that, even though the past might be trying to pull me in another direction. And that's kind of the little crossroads where you'll find yourself in that little intersection there between being pulled to explain yourself by your past or being caused by a future that hasn't happened yet. And in that moment, all it really requires is you to be a potent demand of yourself to act on your future as opposed to succumbing to the thoughts and emotions and moods and outlooks of your past. You don't have to feel it to do it. You only have to do it to do it. And if you just get that to your bones, like, oh, I don't have to feel it to do it. I only have to do it to do it. And when I wrote uh, my book, this I've known, there were many days when I didn't want to go to the laptop, but I did it anyway. And I did it because I said I would do it. And that was the only reason I was there. And I would sit there and type, Mm-hmm. and type and type and type and type and I might not have liked it I might have thought it was terrible I'm just going to keep going I'm only going to go to keep going because I said I would keep going not because I feel like it or even that what I'm saying is decent I'm only going to do it because I said I would and I'm going to keep doing that and I'm going to keep doing that and I noticed I could be highly productive even in my most negative states and in fact some of the juiciest things that are out in the book were given by being someone who could relentlessly produce those results and the face of myself. Mm-hmm. Got it. That's awesome. Well, I think we're kind of out of time, but thank you so much for sharing all of this amazing advice. I'm now going to be, you know, rethinking my entire life for the rest of the day. Thanks to you. <laughs> so uh, you will be in my thoughts as, as your book is here on my desk. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be thinking it through. So anyway, thank you so much. And thanks for inspiring all the listeners and uh, doing all you do to help people. It's really amazing to find someone who's so generous with their life's work. So thank you. Awesome, Zibby. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton, bookhampton.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) 